I ask myself this every day. How do you feel about your, the decisions that you're having to make today? How will you feel tomorrow? How will you feel in a week? How will you feel in a year? How will you feel in five years? And how will you feel in 10 years? And I think that's important. And the what prevailed every single time was, I need to be able to live with myself. Um, and uh, going through this. And this was, um, this this really informed the decisions I had to make. If anybody can take something from this is that uh, think about the future. Sometimes you can ease the discomfort for the moment, but then that leaves you feeling really restless. Well, hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. The Supporting Champions podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. Now to this episode's guest, Dr. Eva Carniero. For reasons that will become clear and obvious, if you don't already know of Eva, I'm going to introduce Eva in two parts. First is the biography and background. Then partway through the interview, I will step out of the discussion and give you some facts and details relevant to a specific incident that, I think it's fair to say, drew a great deal of attention. So Eva is a sports physician and was one of the first eight pioneering doctors recruited nationally to the UK Sports and Exercise Medicine Specialist Training Programme. She worked at the New South Wales Institute of Sport in Sydney and at the Olympic Medical Institute in London in the build-up to the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Eva worked at Chelsea Football Club from 2009 to 2015. During her four seasons as first team doctor, the, the team was successful in winning the Champions League, Premier League, Europa League, FA Cup and League Cup titles. During her six and a half years working with the team, she worked with a total of seven elite international football managers. She's the first woman to sit on a team bench pitch side in the Champions League, Premier League and Europa League competitions and the only woman to become the first female assistant medical director in a football club in the UK. So that's the introduction to Eva's medical and performance credentials. As I said, I will give you the plain facts partway through the interview. But in short for now, Eva filed for constructive dismissal from Chelsea Football Club. And at the tribunal, the case was settled with a full acknowledgement that effectively she was just doing her job. And I quote, was following the rules of the game. Now, Eva's case received widespread media and public attention, all sorts of accusations, pressures, intrusions into her personal and private life for, as I say, essentially doing her job. But perhaps the difference is that she also held her ground against all of those pressures too. Now, if you tuned in to hear all about the dirt being dealt around this case, then you are in the wrong place. That's not what this podcast is about. However, if you want to hear from someone who has operated at the heart of one of the most successful football clubs in recent history, if you want to hear the piercing lessons from someone who has lived through unwarranted scrutiny and exposure, but has held the utmost professionalism throughout and is now leading a campaign for higher standards of professionalism, ethics and governance, and ultimately is standing for doing what is right, then you are in the right place. The fact that, that she has pioneered in a male-dominated environment makes her achievements, perspectives and her voice all the more profound. Eva, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me to speak today. Steve, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, Eva, as the first female team doctor on the Champions League bench, um, can you tell me how excited you were to, to sit on the bench uh, for a Premier League team in the Champions League? What was it, what was it like for you? Um, well, there was very much, obviously, there we were under the pressure of what you need to deliver. Um, so the, the, there's high stakes in football and it's an extremely pressured environment and suddenly that pressure is palpable in the dressing room before you go out to play um, large teams in the Champions League. Um, and, uh, and I think we all felt that. So you, what you do is you then you um, concentrate on your job and you're sort of trying very hard to deliver what each individual, each member of that team needs from you. And often that 
timing's crucial as to treatments and, and what, what you're going to do to install confidence. Um, that is also a very part, the mental aspect of, of um, performance is really important, I think. And then when that is over, I think you is when um, I, I had the opportunity to sit back. When, when you've done all your jobs and the boys are ready, um, as, for example, in the tunnel, when you should take a breather and go, OK, wow, I'm actually really here. And I think for a little um, 16-year-old girl from Gibraltar suddenly decided that she really wanted to be a football doctor when there was no defined training pathway in the UK, um, to then suddenly have that realisation a few years later, <laughs> fair to say, um, that you're actually there, that you're living your 16-year-old dream. It was an amazing moment. Um, so was it, your, was it your dream? Was it, as you were thinking, I want to study medicine, but I want to study medicine in that environment. Absolutely. I, I, um, I, my difficulty was that there was no established training, but actually I remember I wanted to be a vet until I was 16, and then um, at 16, I decided I really didn't want to put down any of my patients ever or use them for practice. And um, fascination for science and movement, was really sporty kid, loved um, dancing and, and horse riding, very polar opposite sports for a developing skeleton, and really didn't have any sort of serious sort of specialty type advice as to how to condition myself to, to be able to perform in those two sports um, as I was growing. Um, and my skeleton was changing into sort of an adolescent uh, girl. So um, so that basically brought up a few injuries and that sparked reading. I remember very clearly um, sitting on the beach after my GCSEs and, and uh, we'd gone to the States um, on holiday and I bought this American College of Sports Medicine book. And I remember sitting on the beach and actually reading it cover to cover. My friends were like, there's a particular word in Gibraltarian slang. And it's like, like, you know, like, <laughs> but they used very, so like, what is wrong with you? You know, this is our holiday. But I was just like... I've got all the answers here. You don't understand. This is what I want to do. I remember the beach and the place and my position on the towel in my little bikini then. And um, so, yes, I, I and then because we had this culture of of loving the sport, um, it was a natural follow. It was just more, it's what I wanted to do. Interestingly, I didn't really see any obstacles as far as gender because I didn't really see my gender. You know, I was a complete tomboy, mainly played with boys, um, you know, because they were active and my, my little social circle in Gibraltar, sort of the boys I knew were more active than the girls I knew. And um, and uh, so, yeah, so that that became what I wanted to do. It became my goal. Wow. What, that sounds like a real calling. Um, I, I could only ever see a PE teacher when I was 15, 16 years old. But you had this actual you you were really projecting into the elite sphere at that stage. That That's an amazing uh, fact that you were uh, felt that purpose and I think it's it's to do with the I guess I sort of I loved my GP he's an amazing man who who I wish had um survived long enough to see um where I got to but uh um he was uh he had a he was a GP with a special interest in in sports medicine play, an avid hockey player Dr Valerino from Gibraltar and um uh he um but his experience of real sports medicine in terms of what load management and progression and 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 um, prehab and and rehabilitation for certain conditions was limited so the answers I used to get were rest rest you know like every time that that my my knee problems came back rest but the rest period got longer and the same pain returned on on competition you know when I resumed competition and and uh, really demoralizing us as it is for for anybody who loves loves to move loves physical activity loves loves sport um, to stop, especially when at 16, when you, you're not armoured with patience. Um, so so I guess that that is what really, um, what I observed on the field, I guess, is an, is a perception of the expertise that it took um, to rehabilitate these players to that level. And that wasn't, I was very aware that that wasn't around me at the time. So it required specialist training. So I wanted to be good. I wanted to be able to advise um, those that were struggling with injury to be able to sort of do more than rest and that's what really sparked the interest in the, in this book and and um and their and then the interest in and a passion for this career fantastic love that um so so fast forward then to those highlight moments um when did you can you share with me a few examples of where you had to pinch yourself of thinking right i was a 16 year old girl reading acsm books on the beach that's which, which <laughs> just say that it sounds wrong but how was it when when you're in the tunnel or in the dressing room are those peak moments against top opponents 
So, I mean, it, it was, it, there were those, like I say, once work was out of the way and I was able to, um, still high on adrenaline, but be able to sort of, able to sort of breathe and take in the atmosphere. And the atmosphere at Champions League um, games is really palpable. It really infiltrates um, every molecule in, in the buildings that we play those games. Um, so I remember particularly um, playing Barcelona in the semi-final on the build-up to our Champions League um, success. And uh, there's a moment where I remember, you know, I remember I was a kid that had watched um, some of these players go up through the ranks and uh, players like Fernando Torres and, you know, um, we said Didier Drogba and, um, and Messi was still very prominent. And uh, I remember a moment when I'm behind Fernando Torres, he's chatting, Didier is, is sort of in front of us, um, discussing with the opposition, possibly trying to mentally intimidate them. And um, and then there's, um, so I'm like literally looking forward and going, I'm literally living my 16 year old dream here and I remember I took a little bit of an illegal photo with my phone because I'm like I it's not a particularly pretty photo you see it's like you know the players that I'm talking about and, and the the tunnel um I can't know but uh but I'm literally going I I just want to remember this forever you know and in my difficult moments around I'm going to look at this photo and go yeah you know you were that little girl in Gibraltar on the beach and and this is where you are now and I think the cherry on the cake was um, what, what was really important to me in that was actually I was just part of the team. I wasn't only there, but I was it was normal for me to be there. It was a non-issue. My gender was a non-issue. Um, my I was literally another person in that team that uh, was working very closely with this amazing world class athletes and uh, another piece of the puzzle. And that was meant a lot to me. And I think there's a moment when I remember sort of Messi was up on my upper head on my left and he looks round and looks at me. Um, and then there's a, like just a little nod and a smile of acknowledgement. And uh, and it was incredible. It was just like a moment of, yeah, I'm part of this. This is I'm now part of this world and it's a non-issue, um, which was almost cherry topping on on um, on my cake, really, to to that moment. I think um, there's, an, there's another moment in the dressing room as well, actually also to do with that game. There are other moments, but those game, that game particularly, I guess, with the, you know, with the Spanish father as well, Barcelona was important and they had such amazing players. Um, uh, although my, I should state before he kills me, my father is a Real Madrid supporter. But uh, not a, not a hater of Barcelona. So um, so uh, so um, and I remember sort of in that dressing room uh, at the champ at basically at half time we were a man down. Um, John Terry had um, just been removed from the field, and um, and we were a man down against uh, unbeaten Barcelona football club who were giants. So we were definitely um, thought that we were the underdog and felt so. And and in uh, dealing with each of those players and the treatments that you deliver at half time in the both the the surveillance the how is this going how are you feeling does anything need doing you know that that's very much what what happens at half time you're making sure people are well hydrated you're making sure that mentally they're in the right place dealing with whatever little niggles or discomforts they are whether anything needs topping up whether there's any sort of masking agents that you do need and uh, um, and uh, in those conversations. I remember I was, I, I think I remember sharing with you, I'm not necessarily an optimist, I'm a realist, I'm a sort of realist with, that can be optimistic. And in that moment at halftime, talking to these players, I remember saying to them, we're about to win this and there's nothing on us that can stop us right now. Because I just felt these boys were working as a team, so together, all of us were in this moment. And I, I just knew, I just knew that, that we were invincible in that moment. And I think, um, I remember thinking, it still brings goosebumps to think of the atmosphere in that dressing room. Uh, and I remember thinking then, I'm never going to live through moments like this again. These will be moments to tell my grandchildren. And we did beat Barcelona. <laughs> wow. I love the phrasing there. I love that. You started saying the atmosphere infiltrating every molecule of the buildings. God, I hadn't thought about co concrete getting excited. But <laughs> you really did feel it. It was almost this vibration that came off where everybody was in this moment. And it was amazing. And a, a, a fantastic, of course, pressured, but very optimistic energy. And uh, the professionalism of those players, um, uh, you know, the dedication, the the being in that moment, uh, concentrating on the performance that they had to deliver. There's uh, us as supportive staff. Um, catering to what was required to produce this performance, they are they are the um, 
I guess, the epitome of what I imagined uh, to be elite sports medicine in football um, when I was a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a real flashbulb moment of just the memories that, that uh, the experiences have given you. But it sounded as though you were playing an active role. You were additive. You were reinforcing that team spirit and team dynamic as a, as a team member. It's not just uh, attending to any niggles or issues and injuries. And that's a transactional relationship that, that you're sensing a team dynamic. You're feeling that. Uh, you're weighing up the, the odds based on being a man down, an important leader figure down against the the most or the, the strongest team on earth at the time and and then geeing them up and adding to that spirit by saying we're going to do this yes i mean i i mean i think you like i read your book you know supporting champions and um there were so many parallels about what you were describing and um and i think it, it when you're working with these giants of men um, because we had, I mean, that team was incredible. We had such amazing diversity of, of world-class players from different parts of of the sphere, really. And um, and it's just knowing how to, um, you're going on this journey with these athletes to, to, to gain the trust of these um, athletes. You have to go on the journey with them. And that sometimes means assuming risk with them um, and, and owning it, um, but being obviously very honest about what those risks are as far as your clinical expertise um, can deliver. Uh, but I think that, you know, you are on this journey and you are living it with them. So I don't think there is a way of being part of this circle without um, actually being part of this. And, and because we have the fortune that we get to know our athletes really well, um, you then know when to give them confidence to push forward because they are human. They are vulnerable to moments and situations and even personal moments or fears um, created by injuries. You then need to know when to give them the confidence or when perhaps to to pull back from that. We're saying, actually, no, this is a this is a risk we should not assume. And uh, and I think if you say yes and you're on this journey um, often enough, saying yes and, and um, owning the risk even to yourself, because you're making decisions about what's best for the athlete and best for the team, not not necessarily what's most comfortable to yourself, as long as you're not obviously putting, um, there are not, no risks that are unassumable. I think there are boundaries that we shouldn't cross, and those are clearly defined. I was always very honest to, to my players about those. But I think it, it is, like you say, it is, um, you have to be part, to be part of these circles, you have to be on that journey with them and be part of that integral part that knows when to give when to take, when to support, when to remain silent in the background and celebrate their success. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more, maybe in a, in a bit, about, about risk and, and handling the, those decisions. And, uh, and you've obviously made some, some important decisions over the years. But, but just linking back to the current day about uh, football restarting across Europe a few weeks ago uh, in, in the UK just now, recently, and so we've had a phase of players being able to train together and then competitive matches restarting without crowds. If you were back at a club, what would be your thoughts about the risks to players, both in terms of COVID-19 and given the limited amount of time that they've had to prepare before restarting? Yeah, I mean, I think um, each each club is a, is almost a different world because it, it um, the 20 clubs that are in the Premier League, there's a different level of resources there's a different level of staffing that, that brings and sometimes even even uh, micro cultures even though there's a bigger culture in football so I think that depends very much on the club you're in and how well you think you can deliver what's required I guess the big surprise and where I felt the need to voice my concerns when when asked is um, I guess what surprises me is that we were in phase one of delivery of return to sport and we were already locking in a date for return um, and we hadn't gone to, through to the further stages, really, to say, actually, it works. We can contain it um, to deliver. It's fair to say that football doesn't have a culture of respecting medical governance. It's very much left to the doctors to deliver protocols and procedures. But the systems are absolutely not in place to both protect the doctors and um, really safeguard the athletes in, in moments where it really matters in high pressured moments. Um, 
I think non-qualified, non non-medically qualified staff have a lot of power and that's where it becomes a real challenge because I think despite good relationships, good communication, um, in a moment in a culture that is so uh, relying on short-term results, pressures can overcome uh, medical decisions. And, and um, so I guess my concerns is that you don't learn a culture of medical governance um, in three weeks. It's just impossible. And even if you are, and there are very positive things about this process where there's a huge investment, the testing twice a week, um, you know, that there's obviously a huge effort. And I want to stress that this is not to take away from the huge collaborative efforts that my colleagues in, in football and, and um, in other sports have, have engaged in, because it really, it is an immense effort and it deserves a lot of credit. Um, but I think we also have to be honest about the cultures we work in. And in order to deliver something that is sustainable and protects athletes in the long term, because COVID is going to be with us for some time, we're not going to have a vaccine tomorrow. Um, we, I think we need to be able to be confident that the protocols and procedures and suddenly systems that are in place are, are going to be with us and going to be carried out for the foreseeable future. And my fear is that without this culture, without this um, reviewing, without this audit whether the, the stages work. Um, we've gone into full competition um, and there's going to be a fatigue of this um, protocols and procedures because there isn't a culture of respecting them to begin with. There'll be a respect of the new, there'll be a respect of the fear of COVID, but then it'll become normal life. And that's, I guess, where I have expressed concerns, where I don't feel, I think we don't know if we're honest, this virus hasn't been with us for long enough. I think the athlete is very different from the asymptomatic general population. They exhibit different traits. We, we excuse me, we speak about immunosuppression in the athletes at the higher intensity. I saw this in uh, clinically in football. Um, I, you know, so the, the, we're learning about the athletic heart within the COVID environment, and again, amazing effort by cardiologists and Sanjay Sharma and his team in in understanding with with. Um, emerging science constantly, emerging evidence constantly, so in, in very quickly coming up with protocols and procedures. But I guess we need to know that these protocols and procedures work within the environment that is football culture. Um, and we've jumped into setting the date. And I think once you start, once you start that tsunami of effort and excitement about full contact sport, it's very difficult to, to um, then put the brakes on it. So, so that I think that is where much excited that I am to see football back and and yes, we all need to see it and we certainly need it for morale and um, I still have concerns as to how we've done that. This is an experiment, we're doing this, we're delivering medical governance in in an environment that isn't used to it, that isn't that doesn't tolerate it terribly well and we're doing this in the middle of a worldwide pandemic um, and we're not waiting for our results of audit before we progress to the next stages. So, I think on the positive, we are seeing governance procedures introduced. Apparently, the Premier League is surveying that the protocols and procedures are adhered to. There's going to be audit carried out in the future, but I guess I guess that's it. It's just jumping on most of the stages. We're, we're the only country in the world that's doing that. We're the only football's the only sport in the world that's doing this. And unfortunately, our, our handling of this COVID crisis in this country isn't exactly a badge of honour. So, so yes, it's fair to say that... Um, I have concerns about what we're doing. So you allude there to non-medically qualified staff, and I presume that there's the there's the whole panacea of sponsors, uh, gov people who are running the sport. Uh, it could be the the fact that somebody just simply needs to fill a stadium at some point to 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 balance the the books of a club. Um, you're speaking there to an unknown risk, aren't you? There's 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 no handle on this risk at the moment, but I suppose the best the best case scenario is that it, it continues to progress and they, they'll go to maybe um, uh, maybe stadia half full or whatever the stage is. But but the worst is that it's going to go back to normal. It's going to go back to not playing. <laughs> and 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 I mean, I think the worst is a spike in the community. And although we can talk about numbers and the population of football being too small to affect our R number. I think if a local population um, is affected and a local hospital is affected, that means that 
um, you know, the population and intensive care beds are not available for people who need them. So, and this is where, you know, there is a public health concern here. Um, and unfortunately, we're in a climate where a lot of the information has been politicised. Um, we can talk about, oh, it's absolutely good um, for sport to return for morale, but really it is about the penalties that we're going to, that are going to be imposed in the absence of, um, you know, with with the dealings with the TV rights. So um, we should be honest about what's at stake. And I completely understand that athletes in this environment are paid very well, but that should not be an excuse for them um, giving up, uh, you know, the safeguarding of both their safety, their families and, and obviously the wider community. Um, but there are positives. Like I say, there was talk of CQC visiting clubs for the first time in history. This is good governance um, uh, starting to, to take form and shape. You know, the with SARS, we definitely saw a difference, a mutation in the virus to something more weak. We're not yet there with um, with COVID, but, you know, the, the, the numbers are, are reducing. So there are positives. This could work. But I guess where I'm, I'm comfortable is that I'm more on the on the side of the other sports who are taking the time, who are assessing, who are auditing what's deliverable within their particular cultures. Because otherwise, you know, the, real, the reality is that footballers are the only individuals in this country who are going back to work without social distances and without protection PPE. So you're uh, enacting there your optimistic realist. I can hear it coming through. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and what would be your suggestions for maximising the safety of players and staff? Um given the pressures for sport to restart, it's restarted, that decision's been made, but what would you, be your suggestions? I think, um, you know, fantastic minds um, have been put to this in terms of public health um, professionals and virologists and obviously sort of chief medical officers and the clinical expertise of, of local doctors. So I think I don't disagree with any of the protocols of procedures that we've seen or that have been spoken about. Perhaps I have questions around the transparency of the audits and the numbers that come through. I've been part of systems that perhaps um, there's sometimes a little bit of flexibility where the truth and the briefing that happens externally, um, you know, uh, might might uh, what might take place may not necessarily uh, be what's reported. Um, so, so those are, I guess, additional concerns about the reality of um, the culture a culture that needs to change. But I think um, this is a great opportunity to change that, to install the importance of governance, because COVID is going to be with us for a while. So hopefully there is a, a learning and education of the non-medically qualified going, um, touching on what needs to happen to safeguard our athletes of the future. And so as a club doctor, how do you balance the risk and the safety the performance versus the availability for example a split decision where a player perhaps it's hurt they're hurt sufficiently that you're concerned but they could play on and then you could add another layer where there might be a highly influential player or perhaps they could in aggravate an injury how do you make those decisions what's going on either on a day-to-day -day basis is there a framework that helps you or is it is it on based on uh, each case as it goes well, I think um, uh, off-field and on-field decision-making are very different. Off-field decision-making, you've got time to deliberate. You've got time to involve the multidisciplinary team who all have very valuable input into what this athlete might be, might be experiencing. Um, I always had very close contact with all the members of the team because it was hugely important um, to, to feed back to what they were feeling when they were treating, conversations, um, attitudes, sometimes mental state. Um, and then figure that into your assessment of the player. So, um, so returning to field was always, um, or returning to play was always a multidisciplinary decision that was carefully considered and with a very honest discussion about risk. And that wouldn't necessarily be my, um, my decision going forward. It's actually, it's everybody's perspective. It wouldn't always um, necessarily be, be mine. I, I just, you know, you give your bid as part of the team and then you come to a consensus. And that consensus is then delivered to the athlete and the manager with a discussion of relative risk as we see it. And of course, the, the, the mental aptitude of the player um, is key here because he's going to be ready, emotionally ready to assume risk. And personal factors, human factors come into play as to how able you are to assume a sudden risk. 
And then there's a consideration of the games. Of, is this game important enough? Do we need this player strategically more for the next game? Is it better to rest now and actually buy time and have reduce our risk window in the following game? On field, it's very different. Um, a, a, really a very different scenario. What happens on field is that you are challenged by a set of circumstances um, that you have no control over. And that usually takes place in the form of a trauma. Now, I was very keen to train in um, in trauma and in emergency departments um, uh, before before going into this team role. I wanted to be very confident that I wasn't going to be impacted or scared by anything I saw, regardless of, of what happened. So I was actually very comfortable making those decisions, as comfortable as you can be, obviously, with when you're assuming that level of responsibility. Um, but you are then making decisions within... It, it helps, I think, not to be sprinting onto the field because that gives the player unless of course there's a there's a sudden loss of consciousness head injury cardiac arrest god forbid um but uh, it does help to give them time to breathe and work through their pain because i think you know at the beginning there's a high anxiety high energy high adrenaline and and you need to decipher what he is on the pain scale the advantage you have is that you know your players really well for me personally it helped to speak different languages to communicate to them at a at a moment of high anxiety or high pain in their own language was to me was very valuable. It gave me a wealth of sensitivity to what they were feeling and thinking mm. in a short amount of time. Important to not be overwhelmed and, and be pushed into making a decision too quickly. Um, and sometimes you have pressure from refs and, and managers and, and sometimes you just need to be able to walk the field and, and be able to um, give it be given time. And then following that, you're then working, you have to deliver that sort of percentage risk as to returning and again, Going back to there are some conditions that are non-negotiable, your concussions, your your possible cardiac arrhythmia or your your impact to certain parts of the body that you're concerned about. Um, but most of the decisions you make are actually about um, sort of being very good at interpreting risk and what you can get away with and actually being able to deliver that to your athletes. It's true that, that different athletes perceive, as we all do as humans, perceive pain and risk and and challenge and ability to push through that in different ways. And it's important, again, to know your athlete and be able to deliver what you feel is best practice to them in a way that they understand, are confident and feel sure to play on if they're going to. Just unpicking a few of the points you mentioned there. You So you spent time on, on trauma wards, uh, accident and emergency to almost, to not only acquire the skill, but also, I suppose, the the escalator in your own mind that you've you've got a bank of experiences of seeing a whole variety of different scenarios is that part of uh, official training to to be pitch side at a, at a top club or is that a, t- a step that you took yourself in order to equip yourself and in, in some ways I'm hearing almost like you're acclimatizing you're, you're over uh, intensifying some of the the learning, so that perhaps when you get on on the pitch, well, you know you've been there and seen <laughs> so many different different scenarios that you're less likely to be able to see those uh, at, certainly at the same frequency on a pitch. Um, the remember, I started training uh, before with a focus of sports medicine, considering going to Australia before training was established or existed as a defined specialty in this country. So I needed to, I observed the professionals that were doing it, both in this country and in Australia and in the United States. And I sort of tried to form what I wanted to be, what was, I was reflective of, of, of what I wanted to feel and the skills I needed to acquire after lots of conversations with a lot of these uh, professionals. I cut, I always say I cut my teeth in Glasgow in Govan, um, and uh, where, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson was born. And I think um, it, although accident and emergency um, is a part of the training now, I think it, it was important for me personally to be able to do it somewhere where at the time was a trauma centre where you had helicopters landing, bringing in very damaged individuals. Uh, and then I was very fortunate to work um, with some impressive doctors and nurses um, in in accident and emergency there where who once you've done your your courses your trauma courses let you lead they'd be behind you but they let you lead these clinical multidisciplinary trauma scenarios for me as a young doctor then it was um, really changed my life I think it's it's probably one of the most incredible jobs um, 
that I've ever had in my life. And uh, and I look back very fondly as to the learning curves and what I was taught and uh, and how the very experienced individuals around me um, uh, worked to make me learn. Uh, sometimes on the hard age of life, but but it was valuable. Um, I think uh, that's that's what I felt was required of me um, at the time when there was no defined training. Um, I know that you can do things like, a, um, a, you know, sort of GP with a special interest and things and maybe that requires less emergency uh, work. But I, I always felt that, um, you know, in a high contact sport and there's high speeds and the injury severity is high in football, regardless of what people perceive it to be. Um, I just wanted to be ready to be to come across anything it you know so and and I think my instincts for me were right you know so like I think within um I think it was my second game as a first team doctor Didier was unconscious on his on his um uh with a facial injury literally unconscious on his front um so I was quite grateful that I was like okay yes I know how to handle this it isn't a problem and you really shut out the public you shut out the cameras you shut out those around you sometimes you even shut out the ref um <laughs> you asked to step away when you're dealing with with you know you having to deal with a multidisciplinary team also that that um you know you don't commonly work with in terms of your your paramedics and your your first responders and so you mentioned there about it's kind of your mindset of focus you're shutting out um it almost feels a little bit like the the conversations i've had with with performers that have to focus to deliver the moment in a final for example to to take take the the gold medal that they I remember talking to Catherine Granger about how uh, at the London Olympics the, the noise was just so intense that she had to focus so hard on every single stroke. How did you stay present? How did you focus and stay clear of mind? Do you have a mantra or a few guiding principles that held you steady? No, I, I think that's where training comes in. That's where repeated experience of, of trauma and traumatic situations and high-pressure situations where actually individuals are about to lose their life. The truth is, is as a doctor, you've seen death a lot. You've been, you've sometimes been present. You've been managing um, as that death ensues. And, and uh, it's just a fact of, of the jobs you do, which is why, you know, I, I, I felt um, very profoundly the stresses of, of the frontline doctors during this COVID pandemic, because I think it's it's a thankless job, and the the less positive impressions that you that you acquire during that training stay with you forever. I remember the face of every patient I lost, um, and it's just a fact of what you do. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do. Um, so so I think that is a very good perspective. Um, I think that's a repeated perspective that you have in your mind um, when you've been trained and you've been exposed to multiple situations where. Where of course you're affected by what you're seeing, but um, you've seen the worst case scenario, and you sure are going to try to um, to try and prevent it. So, so that is, I think, a very, um, I guess, what's the word? I think it's a, I think it's a very sobering uh, thought when you can, you know, when perhaps you know you could be tempted to be distracted by crowds or what's been shouted at you or or stage of the game or. Um, I think the the honestly the 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 experience of death of human suffering um, uh, allows me to concentrate um, on my job every time, and it and it honestly didn't require much of a of a mantra. It just came naturally because of years of training. I'm now stepping out of the interview and gives you some facts and some details about a case that erupted in 2015 on the first day of the Premier League season. Now, Chelsea played Swansea. During the game, Eden Hazard twice called for medical attention following an impact to his abdomen. The medical team were then summoned onto the pitch by the referee on two separate occasions. Eva, along with the club physio, John Fern, came onto the pitch to attend following the rules of the game. But the manager, uh, Jose Mourinho, reacted to the situation because he didn't feel the injury warranted attention. The reaction was pivotal to Eva's case. First, there was a demotion for her from the first team. Also, footage emerged of Jose Marino using abusive phrases towards Eva, which he denied being sexist in motivation. The subsequent furore received extensive press coverage, both for the dismissal, 
the claim for abuse and the character and personal tension scrutiny and sensationalism that Eva was exposed to. Eva's lawyers filed for constructive dismissal, but before she gave evidence, the tribunal for the case was settled on confidential terms. But importantly, as part of the settlement, Chelsea issued a statement saying, we wish to place on record that in running onto the pitch, Dr. Carniero was following both the rules of the game and fulfilling her responsibility to the players as a doctor, putting their safety first. This was important because the statement indicates the position that Eva upheld, upheld beyond perhaps the stage of the game or or its results, the, the hazard situation, beyond the clash with the manager and club, beyond football and perhaps beyond sport too is not only serving her professional duties and a duty of care, but in doing what is right and not capitulating to compromise. Let's return now to the discussion with Eva. So Eva, given that situation, how was it living through that ordeal? I mean, I think um, I feel I've earned the right to move on from that now. Um, it's nearly it's nearly five years now and I want to look at the future and, uh, and you know, all everything that is exciting um, about that um, and be able to enjoy that. But what is important about that future is uh, it is understood that um, doctors in sport, doctors that have a contract and a duty of care in sport, the same as if they have um, a contract in an emergency department or a- any other establishment, um, if you're contracted to look after players, if you're contracted to look after players that are your patients, in essence, if they call for your assistance and require and say they require, make it clear they require a medical examination, my hands are tied. That doc, the, those doctors' hands are tied. They have to take a history and possibly examine in order to be able to say there is nothing wrong, play on or discharge in an emergency department. Doctors do not have... Um, uh, are unable to um, make the call from their room, from their living room, even over a, or over a phone, it becomes difficult sometimes. You need to engage with that patient and then ascertain that the symptoms, the problem isn't risky for them to be removed from the field of play. So, um, and that, that is the case in any sport or any clinical environment in which a doctor works. So I think um, there's been an evolution to requiring more and more doctors in sport because of the risks um, that that people assume if doctors are not present. Uh, but if you are then making the commitment to having a doctor, you need to allow them to do their job given the, their clinical expertise. And there's no way around that. Um, doctors are regulated by the GMC in this country and that's the rules they have to follow in any working environment. And sport is no different. Okay, so very specifically there, Eden Hazard calling you on twice for medical attention. Uh, that's that's the the snippet. That's the the part from that particular case that required you to act under law and under obligation to your professional body. Exactly, and um, not only was I following my duty as a as a medical professional, I was following the rules of the game. And the rules for the of the game are there to be for a reason. Um, so, like I say, there is nothing I can do in that moment, but. Um, examine. Very different if a player calls and then changes his mind and says he no longer requires attention. Um, that can happen because sometimes things hurt and, and symptoms um, decrease in severity and and there's been many times where we've run on field, we've been ready to to um, run on and, and then there's been a change of mind and that's perfectly fine. But I need to be released by that player because I have a duty to them. And the referee is the marshal of the game in that sense? Yes. And in fact, there are situations where the duty of the doctor supersedes that of the referee. For example, if the referee is um, on one side of the field uh, because he's considering being part of the game and somebody collapses in what I think is a cardiac arrest or a serious head injury or starts stumbling because they, they're concussed, I, I, my duty to the, to the patient in that case um, sort of would be to sort of bring attention to the referee that I need to go on. But most of the time, you know, like if I uh, don't manage to get that attention, I'd run on without his permission. OK, so so some clarification around the specifics about what happened. Um, have you replayed that situation in your mind uh, a few times <laughs> since you since it happened? I mean, I think uh, um, it was very clear in my mind. I, I can it extremely clear. And then obviously sort of it was corroborated by by um, images everywhere. 
in terms of the medical the medical um, governance of what happened was clear. There was no no questions about it. And I think every professional body um, was clear about that too. Can I ask you, how did you cope during the situation that unfolded? I mean, I think the, uh, um, it is, yeah, I think I don't want to go into uh, the negatives. Again, I don't want to go back to reliving experiences. Um, it's fair to say is that I think... Um, Anyone who's been put in that position where suddenly, you know, sort of there's all this worldwide attention and, and we're not, um, we don't live in ivory towers where doctors are, are um, normal people. We don't um, ever expect to, to be on the front of every newspaper in every part of the world. Nothing ever prepares you for that. Suddenly I hadn't had any formal training for that. And, um, and it's not something I ever saw happening uh, because none of my male predecessors had ever had that sort of level of attention. So um, it was difficult. I think it's fair to say that now I've made peace with it. And um, even though it wasn't what I imagined, um, my little, again, 16-year-old girl, it wasn't what she wanted. Um, I think I'm going to, uh, yeah, I've, like I say, I've made peace with that situation and I'll do what whatever is in my power to actually change um, the governance and the safeguarding of athletes in sports, which I think um, requires a culture change that hasn't yet happened. And so when you say you've made peace, does that mean that you feel as though you've reconciled, you've parked it, you've moved on, or that that you're now in a position that you can move forward with some some sort of strength? Yeah, I mean, I think the latter. I think... Um, Look, this is not something I chose and it's very difficult for somebody who's worked so hard um, uh, in their career and in what they wanted to follow because it, it is many years of, of training. It is many years of um, of following a particular career path, whether it's on hurdles and setbacks, um, to then have something like this happen and it com- completely out of your control. Um, I didn't want to be in the public eye. I wasn't comfortable with it. I was a very private person. This has happened and here we are. So I need to make peace with it. And for a while, I think it's the best part of four and a half years I've, I've been struggling with that. But um, but but now I'm going to um, accept it and do my best to change what, what needs to change. Because I think silence and um, not voicing concerns of a culture um, is very harmful. And when you say silence in that sense, are you pointing to... The, the conditions in other clubs for your colleagues, other people in a supportive environment, perhaps where they need to speak up, but perhaps don't have the the strength or the facility or the voice to be able to do that. Yeah, I, mean, I think when, when you're working for a, a um, an organisation, a club, a large, powerful corporate, as a doctor, you have a duty of confidentiality to the players. And it's fair to say that you have a loyalty to that environment as well in terms of you try to work towards change from the inside so I think it is difficult I think um, there's a place for diplomacy engaging in conversation about what structured change needs to look like and it's not about actually coming into war making war with everything but also I think it's important to recognize that silence in non-negotiable situations be it child abuse racism um, you know, so not safeguarding athletes in their in their requirements for medical care or medical decisions, um, then there's a duty to speak up um, because you wouldn't get the Larry Nassars, you wouldn't get the the situations that we've seen in sport, so child abuse in football, if people weren't went silent. Um, so I think that yes, that that there's a work for change from the inside, and I think there's a big responsibility, and it is really difficult. Um, to speak up. Uh, um, obviously, it's much easier to align yourself um, with those that, that hold power. Um, but I think we need to change this perception of by not saying anything, I'm actually not doing any harm. I'm not doing any good, but I'm not doing any harm. Actually, you are the harm. If we've learned anything in the last few years, be it Me Too, be it the racism we're seeing, be it... Um, you know, be it, like I say, medical governance is that actually silence is extremely harmful and it's what allowed very powerful and very evil individuals to to continue doing what they were doing. Okay, so what I'm hearing there is a couple of points about perhaps the passivity that can underlie relationships, dynamics, um, identifying issues where 
where at its worst, ultimately, you don't want to rock the boat. If you're not active, that doesn't that doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you're not being. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not complicit, but but you're you're hiding it. You're adding to a, a, a culture of silence. I, I would go further. I'd say you are complicit. I think if you turn really, I think if you turn your eyes to not seeing what is there to be seen, then you are part of the culture that's creating the damage to individuals. Um, and, and I think historically, if we go back to all the cases of abuse, um, you know, uh, and um, and this comes into, um, you know, if you get a perpetrator of, of the situations and, and governs isn't observed, it allows those perpetrators to, to go unchecked. And this, this does um, spill over into medical um, medical decisions. With good medical governance, Larry Nassar could never have been so powerful for many years because he was clearly not following governance procedures and the systems were not in place um, in order to sort of to to question um, you know what he was up to really so I think that's where um, I think we have to take on board that when we are when we take this training when we're part of this culture and um, we have a certain level of responsibility and I'm not saying it's easy but I think you know sort of I think we we are in careers that are not for the faint-hearted either no, I think that's important to point out that you're not speaking from a position of of pandering and railing against everything unseemly in a football club. You're not you're not campaigning here for a a puritan sanitized environment. You're talking about not letting standards slip and saying and acting and changing when things are not right. It's the best part of seven years with one particular club. It was had experiences of, of being within football cultures and research type uh, scenarios prior to that. I think if I was um, uh, upset by non sanitized environments, I wouldn't have survived very long in the dressing room. And uh, and I think there's a certain level amount of respect and certain boundaries that you have to very clearly um, define when you work in those environments. Um, and that's, you know, that that is a responsibility that the individual holds. However, like I say, there are non-negotiables and those should be clear. Those should be clear. We've had enough examples of what happens when those non-negotiables are ignored. How does a club, an organisation set the right conditions so that people can speak and identify issues and don't, don't feel afraid? Um, I mean, the first thing I think is is having an understanding of what medical governance uh, um, requires. It is about justice um, and it is about auditing. It is about reviewing your systems and procedures. It's about having clear guidelines so that everyone knows their place. Everybody knows the boundaries of their duty and their expertise. Um, In football, we live in a very little bubble. And sometimes we think that bubble is real life. um, And that's where the life, death, loss of limb, loss of life issues come into play that's where governance um is important uh so i think it's i think representation of of medical professionals medically trained professionals in boards or closer to boards um the education that goes with that educating those that are non-medically qualified as to why these systems are in place and why they cannot be overlooked even when you're losing against um teams that are that are much smaller than yourself and it's going to look terrible on your on your results record um understanding why those systems are in place and this takes time it cannot happen overnight what is it guess brings us back to the return to play and and covid and um it takes time to change a culture but i think it's absolutely possible and the important thing to to say as well is that i think we have a new generation of of players who are bright we have a new generation of managers who are younger and and the culture, I think, will change and um, it'll be easier to do so in the future. But I think we need to put the systems and processes in place to allow that to happen. And it isn't about every, anybody feeling threatened that their practice is going to change. It's actually about understanding and enriching that, that allowing athletes to feel safe in processes and decision makings and allowing athletes to know that they have a safe place to go with mental health concerns and allowing them to speak up actually leads to better performance. I've witnessed that where, you know, athletes give their all or actually start feeling that um, they're not valuable um, despite their skill uh, because they are decisions are overlooked. Um, and so what, what support does there need to be for people in a similar situation, whether it's a whistleblower, medical staff like yourself, 
uh, or even the leaders in a position of responsibility for their business and the governance of their operations. Well, in the end, if something goes terribly wrong, um, it should be understood that under health and safety um, legislation, a club chairman could be responsible for a death or um, an untoward development with the health of a player. So I think that should be a sobering enough fact. I think that's actually poorly understood. I think that the responsibility of all medical things that happen um, lie with the doctor. And, and equally, if something goes wrong, then the doctor will be liable and will we'll, um, uh, start a legal process against that doctor. But actually, in order to uh, for a doctor to function, there needs to be a system in place to allow that to do. So I've been approached by a lot of legal firms wanting me to engage in medical legal work because this environment is so unique. And obviously, I'm one of the ones that, that has had experience of it. And often when you examine these cases, is that the, the recurring theme is that Yes, the doctor didn't act um, following perhaps the best practice. But what comes out every time is that the system put him in a position to fail. And at the moment, um, uh, you know, the system is not being held accountable. But there will come a time when, for example, as we're seeing in the NFL with CTE, when um, we're seeing that actually the system is made accountable with dire consequences for, for everyone. So actually it's in everybody's interest, those are, that are so heavily invested um, in, in football to actually change what was currently happening. Are you pointing there specifically to, say, if the, if the buck stops with the board, that we're then talking about having due process and diligence such as a risk register, uh, what actions were taken against that risk, the, the plans that were put in place, the weighing up of the decisions against the, the different facets of an organisation, so that ultimately, if a court a case goes to into a legal situation, there's an audit trail of, of the decisions made and therefore how accountable they are to that decision or the outcome or the, the fatality. Evidence of risk mitigation, not putting individuals at risk, be it the doctor and his medical decision-making or the athlete in a particular situation. So this is all part of good governance. And um, football really has no excuse, you know, in, like it's it's um, well-funded and um, it should be, there should be the means to change this culture. And honestly, I think it leads to better results. So specifically there, um, I'm just thinking away from this about how ultimately if you've got a positive culture that's that's embracing voices, it, it, it has got diversity of inputs, that the, the most highly paid person isn't the most powerful at the, at the club or the organisation. You're unearthing opportunities there for you to be able to improve performance on the pitch. Honestly, at the times that, you know, we've had success, there's been um, an, an atmosphere of respect, of valuing the individual, valuing the human in that process um, and really that's I think when when we all give our best um, it's uh, it's it's certainly been studied well studied in the corporate environment in terms of leadership styles and and how people um, feel valued and encouraged and perform better and it's absolutely even though we intellectualize it a lot less it's absolutely the case in football we need our athletes very well and I can tell you of, of times when People were lost in their engagement, losing the dressing room. It was clear in their faces and the expressions. There are many times when I remember those faces and expressions. They stay with me very clearly as to a lot of respect for, you know, sort of leadership situations, um, be it at club or managerial level. And I think there are good good parallels to be held by, um, you know, by by it's like in the army, for example, where every sort of every ship has to have its captain, and that's a, a certain form of leadership. But actually, you have medical staff within that that have their role. Everybody knows the system because there is a governance procedure to that system, and that machine then works, you know, like a well-oiled, efficient machine that produces good results. And that's yeah, that's when lives are at risk and it's war. Why cannot we produce reproduce those systems on a football pitch or in the build up to a, a big result? Um, but it requires confidence and it requires people to feel secure and it requires a bit of a longer term planning and thinking. And this old um, style of leadership of, of um, perhaps more dictatorial, uh, 
you know, sort of bullying, harassment, the new generations um, are not going to tolerate bullying and harassment. They're well versed in, in what they are not going to tolerate. So um, I think the old leadership styles perhaps would not be quite so successful in modern football. And, and what would you like to see, say, five years down the line? What, what good should come from not only your case and your experience, but, but also what you've, you've come to sh- strengthen the, the points and the ideas that you, that you have got renewed strength around? Well, I think it's it's I mean very very much that perhaps we're sort of um, touching on it again, but I think the safeguarding of 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 athletes in their medical treatment, I think that is uh, very close to my heart, and I passionately believe that um, any any individual should be given the respect um, and the place um, in their uh, that they can be autonomous as to the decisions they make. Um, and their place of work, regardless of how much you're paid, regardless of a glamorous environment, regardless of how much media um, attention that place of work has, um, that individual should have the respect and should feel safeguarded in issues of race, in issues of, um, like I said, medical decisions, gender, um, sexuality, religion. And I think that's very much left to... um, the autonomy of each particular culture in each club. But I think there should be a corporate governance embracing of the fact that medical governance um, is part of this a well-oiled machine that, that actually then becomes more robust to resist litigation. And can I ask you about where you are at now on this day as we, we're talking? How are you emotionally, professionally, personally, philosophically? Well, um, I'm very well. Steve, I'm, I'm pleased to say, I think one of my objectives, um, having been through difficult situations, every difficult situation I've been in my life has always been like, um, how am I going to feel? And I asked myself this uh, during during the processes and the, and the situations that we lived. I asked myself this every day. How do you feel about your, the decisions that you're having to make today? How will you feel tomorrow? How will you feel in a week? How will you feel in a year? How will you feel in five years and how will you feel in 10 years? And I think that's important. And the what prevailed every single time was I need to be able to live with myself um, and uh, going through this. And this was um, this this really informed the decisions I had to make um, and through the entire uh, discomfort of, of what was happening to me, to my family, to my husband. I was just about to get married and. And we got married the first year of, of my marriage. It should have been a really happy time. I was about to be the next director. Um, so it's, uh, it's um, I, I think that's important. And I think if, if anybody can take something from this is that uh, think about the future. Sometimes you can ease the discomfort for the moment, but then that leaves you feeling really restless. That has allowed me to move on, to be happy, to enjoy perhaps some of the things, the, the autonomy, some of the things, the, the, the work-life balance, although I'm still not terribly good at that, um, that, that I couldn't enjoy because when you are part of that system, literally there are no days off, night and day, your phone's on and I can now switch off my phone and go horse riding, for example, or, you know, sort of go, oh, um, that, that to me was a real novelty <laughs> that, I, that I'm very much enjoying. I have a quality of life. I feel passionate about the same issues. I'm going to keep passionately discussing the issues um, that need to be aired, really. Um, and I think there is a price to pay for that. I think when you speak up, you're always, there's a group of individuals or there's a culture that perhaps treat you as if you're doing something wrong. And that can be a very lonely place sometimes. Um, but I think it is important to air that because I didn't do anything wrong. I was only doing my job. And, um, and that's why I feel confident um, about continuing to speak about it. It's powerful stuff. And I'm overwhelmed by how you've conducted yourself. And can I only imagine it would have been fairly easy just to have crawled away <laughs> and, and just stepped away and just thought, you know what, I can't, I can't handle this. And I can imagine that that would have crossed your mind at different times. But the fact that you've got this renewed strength, that you, you are adding to the cause, uh, is profoundly powerful to hear it. And, and instructional in many ways that listening to you and thinking about how can I find a better way of doing it myself. So f- thank you so much for, for joining us, Eva, and sharing your, your insights, your, your lessons. And um, 
it's, it's perhaps too glib often we say fighting the good fight, but you're definitely fighting a good fight. Oh, thanks very much. Well, hopefully there'll be, like I say, there's new generations of both managers and players, and, and I think they are key to changing all of this. But also I think it's important to say that actually the fans also have a responsibility um, because what I think makes um, the culture so robust to continue on changes that fans, because our parents, you know, have supported um, the same teams because it becomes a generational thing that we sort of tend to overlook what isn't so good. But I think it's, you know, we're, we're in a time now that actually it's about actually wanting to support the right things, the things that are, I believe, going to change the world. And um, and I honestly do believe uh, fiercely that the next generation is going to be able to do that. Well, um, I'm just wondering, that's that's an amazing, the optimistic view, and I think we should all share in it. Um, maybe that comes from your father, who was a Real Madrid fan, that, but recognised excellence in a Barcelona team. Uh, that takes an awful lot of open-mindedness. It does, with occasional <laughs> occasional retributions, um, <laughs> but um, but absolutely does. <laughs> Eva, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today, Steve. And many thanks for for being so respectful and so sensitive to and patient <laughs> in waiting for me to be able to be ready to speak. You can follow Eva on Twitter at Eva Carniero and have a look at her medical practice, thesportsmedicalgroup.com. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve and have a look at our supporting champions page on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.